We were sort of comparing it to diet. It's, it's like expecting all of your nutrients to come from the one yeah. thing, which is just not an expectation we have anywhere, anywhere else. And I think folks know my view on this. It's always better to forward announce and back announce. <laughs> A radio relevant thing. That's wonderful. <laughs> to you by Sexpo, proudly sponsoring FBI Radio. Welcome, dear listener, to Let's Talk About Sex, the rather self-explanatory segment. I'm joined today by our resident, Tanya, and, and our, our topic's an interesting one. I, I prefaced it before, but if you didn't catch that, it's the deprioritizing of romantic relationships. But before we get stuck into that one, I'll do a quick recap. So, Last episode's opener, why do romantic relationships take priority over non-romantic relationships in our society? Yeah. Um, Okay. So I think like other relationships in our lives, our romantic relationships play a really important role in fulfilling our needs, right? Our needs for intimacy, social connection, sexual relations, yeah. And historically, these were uh, these kinds of relationships were partnerships, and they were focused around making family groups more workable and more successful. Right, so it wasn't so much about who you liked, but who could add value to the group and make the group function better. But then, when capitalism came along and the industrial revolution, people had more leisure time and more ability to think about things and to pursue romantic interests. And marriages begin to change around that time. So it started with the more affluent classes. And today it's sort of petered all the way down where we're expecting things to be all-encompassing with our romantic partner. Indeed. So as you sort of touched on that, romantic relationships are often associated with you know, emotional intimacy, but, but also security mm. and, and investment, care for each other. Why is it that those expectations exist so intensely in a romantic context but are not expected as often in, in platonic relationships. This is, I mean, this is the question of the day, really, isn't it? We're going to pick that apart a bit. But I think it's the emphasis that society puts on these relationships. You know, once we received all of this from the village, you know, the family groups and the villages that we belong to, and now we're expecting to receive all of this goodness from one person. And I think that's a really big ask. And I think that we should be exploring getting our needs met from a number of different people. So if we're in a monogamous relationship, maybe our partner might be the major source of meeting our needs, but we can also have friendships and family members and people we work with. There's lots and lots of people around us who can feed into us, support us, encourage us, and we can be part of that group for other people as well. It doesn't have to be all one person. It's a lot. No, I know completely. I was having a conversation with with Tanya, the other Tanya, dear listener, um, the producer of this show, the wonderful producer of this show, and we were sort of comparing it to diet. It's it's like expecting all of your nutrients to come from the one yeah. thing, which is just not an expectation we have anywhere anywhere else. No, you know? so yeah, and one remember, imagine being responsible for one hundred percent of somebody else's needs. Yeah, that's a huge responsibility, and also so destructive to be in a relationship and having that expectation and feeling like your relationship is. Yeah. Bad because you're putting an impossible standard on it. Yeah. Yes. So much to say. <laughs> Moving on, though, how can deprioritizing romantic relationships actually help them to be healthier, to be more nourishing? Actually, yes. Okay. So, um, 
I think it sounds weird, but a lot of people take their romantic relationships for granted. Right? If we if we treated all of our our romantic relationships like those that we have with our closest friends, I think there'd be a lot more respect and less arguing and more working to make sure that the relationship is going well. And when I'm working with clients, I often tell them, I want you to argue as if you're arguing with your best friend, because we all know that our best friend can take their bat and ball and go home if we don't behave well. And so we, we were a little more respectful and a little more careful about that. Whereas with our partner, people assume, you know, we're kind of stuck with this person and they speak to their partner so poorly. I'm really shocked sometimes when I see people speaking to each other or fighting with each other really down low nasty. And those, we assume there's no adverse consequences because we've made a pledge or a promise to this person. But this, by the way, is a fairly incorrect assumption because it will damage and erode the relationship. But also, if we're having relationships, friendships, influences, we're going to be exposed to different ideas and opinions from those outside the relationship that we relate to. And that can give our partner a break from us. And then we can come back full of new ideas and experiences, vim, vigor, enthusiasm. You know, so a chance to miss them, a chance to admire them out in the world with their friends and what they're doing, and the influence that they too are going to receive from other people. So more people lighten the load and keep us open to new ideas, I think. That is a wonderful, wonderful insight. I, I, particularly on that note of, of lightening the load, for, for some marginalized people, can deprioritizing their romantic relationship be you know, quite essential, quite important to their own survival. Ooh, you know, this is a topic that I've been doing some reading on and is close to my heart because I believe there's a real economy of care in our society. I've often talked to friends about, you know, prime social real estate, you know, is a Friday and Saturday night, the weekends you save for your lover or your family and single folk are often relegated to weeknights and uh, things like that. So I think... We need to have a look because in every context, there seems to be a limit to the care that others are willing to give to single people. And lots of um, lots of queer uh, people of colour, disabled people are sort of going, hmm, this is, uh, this is making it a bit more tricky for me in the world. So for them, it's really difficult to see how other people invest their time as anything other than a choice, right? So those around single people often deprioritise their friendships for the sake of prioritizing their romantic and sexual relationships. So the folk that are writing about this are saying, you know, historically people with more normative bodies than their own, white, thin, more abled, or, you know, cis, not disabled, some sort of combination of that, have access to more romantic feelings than they do because people are more interested in dating them and relating with them. And then the priority goes into these relationships as well. So the theory is that if you're different in any way from societal norms or prioritised groups, then it's going to be more difficult to get into a relationship and then experience the benefits of relating, if that makes sense. yeah. And there's a really great uh, author, uh, Caleb Luna, who wrote, I'm only on antidepressants, but I can only reprogram my brain chemistry and not my social material reality right? They can't program the ones I love to give me care I need. They can't alter the experiences of devaluation, deprioritization and disinvestment that others' perceptions and interactions of my body have on me. So think about that. You're constantly experiencing other people stepping over you and, and putting their efforts elsewhere. How do you think that's going to make people feel? 
Um, and the benefits in romantic partnerships, I think, are feeling prioritised, feeling that someone cares for you, feeling that someone's interested in your day-to-day. So it's investment and care and feeling significant. And these are really important things for human beings. No, absolutely. And I suppose in a way, lacking that, not only, you know, there's an absence of those things, but potentially being like repeatedly overlooked because of the Mm. prejudices that exist around us. It would feel like a negation of those things. It would feel like like an anti sort of like you go into the negative. Yeah, and you you suddenly become invisible, don't you? Mm. It's Mm. like, oh wait a second, you know, why am I getting invited to things? Or why why am I sitting home every weekend? Yeah. Uh, what's happening here? I don't feel cared for. Why isn't anyone asking me how I am? And all, all of those, you know, kind of wonderful sentiments about the self that would come from being supported are are then inverted almost yeah yeah well this all begs the question and understandably this will look different for every individual but in a general sense how can we each figure out the best balance between romantic relationships and familial relationships platonic relationships (laughs) yes what a question this is because i think you know, uh, and lots is written about this. Our capacity for love is infinite. You know, often people think, oh, you know, I have to give my whole pie to my sweetie pie, right? And if I love somebody else, like a friend or a family member, then it's like taking a slice of my sweetie's pie out and giving it to somebody else. Not so. We have this infinite capacity to love people. However, time is sadly limited. So it becomes all about prioritizing, which is why we're talking about deprioritizing. So the things that we put in our calendars, in our diaries, are the things that we prioritise. So I think we do live in very busy times where busyness is worn as a badge of honour and people find it hard even to invest in their primary relationships these days. But then what are we actually doing? It seems like we're all too busy with work and domestics and social media to invest in the face-to-face. And we have to remember that relationships are nourishing and we heal and we learn by relating, right? So one person can't meet all our needs. We've chatted about that. That's unfair. But, you know, when we're hurt, when we're sad, when we want to understand situations, it's our interactions with others that's going to to help us with that sort of stuff. So we need to sort of talk to our friends about their lives, be curious. Um, it doesn't always have to be face-to-face. We can chat online. I've got a friend that I met 10 years ago at a workshop, and we've had an open chat window ever since. Um, we talk every day on there. We sometimes have FaceTimes. We sometimes have calls. They live in Melbourne. Um, I'm in Sydney. So we try and catch up once or twice a year, either at a work thing and definitely a social thing. We take holidays together. We're all over it. Um, and we support each other to support others as well. Right? So if you've got family and domestic responsibilities, can you and your partner ensure that each other gets time to get out and connect with friends? Because it's going to benefit everybody in the end. What a wonderful package. <laughs> I love these things that are conceptual in a way, but then so wonderfully applicable. We've been talking about the over-prioritizing of romantic relationships in our society, in our context, in our lives, and how deprioritizing them might be the best thing for you, for your relationship, for your friendships. Really an overall good influence. Let's get back into it and talk about our friends. So. What are some ways that we can look out for our single friends who might be feeling these kind of isolating pressures of not having a romantic attachment? Oh, so this is a good question. Um, 
we can check in on them. We can look out for them when they're sick. Uh, we can see if they need some help around the house. You know, some chores require two people or strength or just energy. I was reading the other day that 40% of the population are suffering from some sort of invisible and chronic pain. Uh, so how many of those folk live alone and might need a hand in some of the things that they're doing? Um, we can share with them. We can share our sadnesses, our joys and the ins and outs of life because this is the stuff that makes people feel valued and included and they're often culturally reserved for romantic relationships, particularly as people get older. So if you're dining out in groups, don't couple up when you're ordering shared dishes. It alienates the single folk. If you're out in groups, check in on your single friends in the group instead of focusing only on your sweetie. There's lots of things that you can do. Um, phone check-ins, FaceTimes, text, uh, slide into people's DMs. How are you doing? WhatsApp chats, group chats. Um, lots of things that you can do for busy during the day contacts. And then have a look at your diary. How long has it been since you've seen friends and how long has it been since you've seen single friends? Perhaps maybe prioritising them over your couple catch-ups on occasions or inviting them to group outings. Who cares if the numbers are odd? Yeah. Completely. I, I think we've all experienced the joy of having someone randomly text or randomly call, but it's one of those things that yeah. seems to make such an impact and then not produce that ripple-on effect of, of, well, people doing it again, doing it back. It's good to be included. People like feeling included, even if they can't make it. Um, a lot of people who are socially anxious and stay home a lot just like it when people invite them, even if they're like, no, I'm not going to come. The, mm. the fact that they've been thought about and invited is really wonderful. No, most certainly. Well, so as not to malign the, the, the single individual, is it in some cases beneficial for people to spend time being purposefully or, or maybe intentionally single? I think so. I think we can all benefit in learning how to be independent and enjoy our own company. I remember it took me quite a while before I felt comfortable to go to a cafe on my own or a gallery or the movies because I've been so indoctrinated that you have to do things with other people. So it's completely empowering when you do that sort of thing because uh, why should you be missing out on doing things simply because you, you're not partnered or you can't find a buddy to come with you? I think we need to remember, too, that more and more people are living alone. So we need to normalize folks doing things on their own and not make it purely the realm of the coupled. No, absolutely. Well, yes, breaking out of the, the, the couple's realm, how do I know if I'm giving too much to other relationships and, and, and not prioritizing my relationship, not with my partner, but with myself? can oh yeah sit down with yourself wait a second do you have time to sit down with yourself are you out every night are you skipping things that are just for you like exercise health doctor's appointments self-care journaling creative pursuits what do you need to do to make time for and prioritize yourself I think a lot of us go out there and get very busy. I'm guilty of this myself. When something's bugging me and I need to actually sit down and spend that time, I'm often ringing up people going, what are you doing? Let's do this. Let's do that. I'm making myself busy so I don't have to sit with some of the more gnarly things that I might need to process or learn. So sit down with yourself. See what's going on uh, and just check in. If I'm giving a lot to relationships, am I getting stuff back? What's going on there? No, most certainly a hugely important thing, yeah. irregardless of whether you're in a relationship or not. But yeah. if you are, 
This is a big one, I think. If you and your romantic partner have different expectations of how much you should prioritize each other, feature in each other's lives, time spent, whatever it might be, is this something that's able to be worked through, or is it really an incompatibility? Ah, this is also a a good question, because I think this is something that needs discussing right from the start and then ongoing, because people have very different expectations of relationships. They're shaped by their family, by their upbringing, by religious expectations, by previous relationships, and often different types of trauma. For example, those with abandonment in their psychology may want to attach quickly and attempt to form secure relationships much faster than those who are like, oh, well, you know, no, uh, I'm, I'm pretty secure in myself and I would like to take some time. So it's up to all of the parties involved to discuss availability, intention, capacity. Uh, We forget sometimes that what we expect might be vastly different from someone we've just started dating and relating to. Uh, So we really need to speak about what it is we're hoping for and what if your new love isn't on the same page. I I know that I have dated people and they're like, right, okay, after date two, we're in a relationship. And I've been like, no, this is not where I'm at right now. And other folks have been spending lots and lots of time and they're like, this is, no, no, I'm not in a relationship. I I spend seven days a week with you and do everything. But no, 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 I'm not in a relationship. So we need to really talk about it and be clear what's happening. And I think, again, for some people, sex complicates things. So they feel like, well, now we're relating or now we're monogamous. Uh, So some, it it will signify commitment and monogamy, whereas others view it as intimacy and fun, maybe even sport, but not a commitment or a relationship. So we really need to check in. Sport was a wonderful word (laughs) thrown in there. Um, You know, spinning around this this, this term monogamy, something increasingly prominent in just the, the modern I suppose, psyche about these things is polyamory. And that begs the question, how can people in polyamorous relationships navigate relationship prioritization with their partners? Oh, this, I mean, this is the essence of polyamory. You know, I had a client once who said, Tans, you know, if you want to be polyamorous, you need to like talking about relationships, right? And it's really true because this is all about intention and availability. And most folks who are conducting polyamorous relationships are also good at scheduling and calendars uh, because, as we said, your capacity to love is infinite, but time is not. So we need to speak to each other about our intention, what's our availability. If you have a nesting partner and children, um, your availability might be significantly less than someone doing solo poly. Um, it's all about communication and it's it's stopping surprises. And I think folks know my view on this. It's always better to forward announce than back announce. <laughs> a radio relevant thing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, we, I suppose coming to the close here and, and bringing it back to something almost nostalgic, a lot of people remark or, you know, wistfully relive their, their high school friendships, right? That youthful kind of intimacy that was maybe unclamped down by the obligations and commitments that we have as adults. But I, I don't think we necessarily have them as adults. I think we just do. So how can we bring some of that youthful intimacy back into our friendships? Into you, yeah. You know, I think when you've got high school friendships, it, it takes 400 hours to make a close friendship. So that's generally school or university for folks. And then as we get older it gets more and more difficult to spend 400 hours with people. 
So if you think about the level of intimacy in that, that's going to be a friend that's like family, you know, that you like them even when they do shitty things. And you you think they're funny sometimes and sometimes they're very annoying. Uh, so it's much easier, I think, when you know someone at that level to be silly and to be kooky, that sort of stuff. So today, um, if you're trying to make friends, you've got to make it safe, I think, to be silly and to be kooky and to have fun. So part of that is being vulnerable. You've got to open up to let people know who you are and let them know that you are a safe person for them to be a bit silly with or a bit funny or a bit vulnerable, right? Intimacy, I think, is all about vulnerability, don't you? Yeah, and it's fascinating how many spaces there are to have friends. Maybe they're the work friends and you just go to the pub because that's what you do. But how many dynamics of friendship there are that you can, you know, maintain without ever actually being vulnerable i think yeah, it's fascinating because you've got you've got well i think your your tier one friendships are the 400 hour folks but then there's tier two you know they're kind of social groups you check them out on social media you might catch up with them once every month or two have a nice time and you've got your tier threes which is like community wave hi hi how's things you stop and chat but and then you've got acquaintances and then you have strangers right so we don't know that many people that well we don't open up and people don't know the ins and outs of our life. So this is that benefit of relating again, isn't it? The more we open up, the more we can also receive back in in the way of nourishment and care. Another conceptual, I don't know, home run feels wrong, <laughs> but bring it back to sport, maybe, I don't know. Quite the heavy hit there. And again, one that is as conceptually admirable as it is applicable. So, well, thank you, Tanya, so much. But before we finish, we're going to have a poem read, aren't we? Uh, yes, a poem about being alone. Uh, this is a sort of positive take on being alone. So I thought it would be really great to include this because a lot of people feel bad about being single or not having enough friends or friendships. So this is one for the single folk out there. Before we go, I'm going to remind folks in relationships, pick up the phone, call a single friend, check in on them, see how they're going. And for the single folk out there, Have a listen to this poem about the joys of being alone. If you are, at first, lonely, be patient. If you've not been alone much, or if, when you were, you weren't okay with it, then just wait. You'll find it's fine to be alone once you're embracing it. We could start with the acceptable places, the bathroom, the coffee shop, the library, where you can stall and read the paper, where you can get your caffeine fix and sit and stay there, Well, you can browse the stacks and smell the books. You're not supposed to talk much anyway, so it's safe there. There's also the gym. If you're shy, you can hang out with yourself in mirrors. You could put headphones in. And there's public transportation, because we all gotta go places. And there's prayer and meditation. No one will think less if you're hanging with your breath, seeking peace and salvation. Start simple. Things you may have previously avoided based on your avoid being alone principles. The lunch counter where you will be surrounded by chow downers, employees that only have an hour and their spouses work across town and so they, like you, will be alone. Resist the urge to hang out with your cell phone. When you are comfortable with eat lunch and run, take yourself out for dinner, a restaurant with linen and silverware. You're no less intriguing a person when you're eating solo dessert and cleaning the whipped cream from the dish with your finger. In fact, some people at full tables will wish they were where you were. Go to the movies, where it is dark and soothing, alone in your seat amidst a fleeting community. 
And then take yourself out dancing to a club where no one knows you. Stand on the outside of the floor until the lights convince you more and more and the music shows you. Dance like no one's watching, because they're probably not. And if they are, assume it is with best and human intentions. The way bodies move genuinely to beats is, after all, gorgeous and affecting. Dance until you're sweating, and beads of perspiration remind you of life's best things, down your back like a brook of blessings. Go to the woods alone, and the trees and squirrels will watch for you. Go to an unfamiliar city, roam the streets, there are always statues to talk to, and benches made for sitting give strangers a shared existence, if only for a minute, and these moments can be so uplifting, and the conversations you get in by sitting alone on benches might have never happened had you not been there by yourself. Society is afraid of alone, though, like lonely hearts are wasting away in basements, like people must have problems if, after a while, nobody is dating them. But lonely is a freedom that breathes easy and weightless, and lonely is healing if you make it. You could stand swathed by groups and mobs or hold hands with your partner. Look both further and farther in the endless quest for company. But no one's in your head, and by the time you translate your thoughts, some essence of them may be lost, or perhaps it is just kept. Perhaps in the interest of loving oneself. Perhaps all those sappy slogans from preschool over to high school's groaning were tokens for holding the lonely at bay. Because if you're happy in your head, then solitude is blessed and alone is okay. It's okay if no one believes like you. All experience is unique. No one has the same synapses, can't think like you. For this, be relieved. Keeps things interesting, life's magic things in reach. And it doesn't mean you aren't connected. The community's not present. Just take the perspective you get from being one person in one head and feel the effects of it. Take silence and respect it. If you have an art that needs a practice, stop neglecting it. If your family doesn't get you or a religious sect is not meant for you, don't obsess about it. You could be in an instant surrounded if you need it. If your heart is bleeding, make the best of it. There is heat in freezing, be a testament.